And tonight I'm preaching uh, really on the Reformation. So bear me up in prayer, please, if you would. I'll read a few verses from the second last book of the Bible. I started this morning uh, on the first verse of the first book of the Bible. Uh, I'm going to uh, preach, uh, well, I'm not going to say I'm going to preach from a verse, but I'm going to refer to a verse and use it as a foundation uh, for preaching uh, on the Protestant Reformation. Uh, The Epistle of Jude, and we'll commence reading at the first verse of the Epistle. We'll just read a few verses uh, of that Epistle. Uh, Jude, I can't say chapter 1 because there is just the one chapter, and then uh, we'll uh, read down just to verse 4 of the chapter. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace, and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll end our reading there at verse 4. We do trust the Lord will bless the reading of his holy truth. Let's bow together very briefly in a word of prayer. Gracious God, we pray thou wilt help us as we meditate upon thy truth. Fill me with thy Holy Spirit Breathe out thy spirit upon us. May we hear what thou art saying. May we heed it. And may we put it into practice in our lives. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. The part of the verse that I want to start with uh, is in verse 3. And it says, Ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And Uh, What we have here is a description or a mention of the faith. And I will come to uh, what we mean by the faith in a moment or two. And we are told uh, that the faith has to be fought for. Earnestly contend, it says, for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Uh, The expression contend uh, has in uh, the original language... Uh, a, a word, a verb uh, that uh, comes into English as agonize. So uh, there's a tremendous struggle taking place. We're agonizing for the faith. And you will see that uh, it has been uh, entrusted to the saints. That word delivered, it's the same word as uh, the word betrayed. That's a strange thing. Once betrayed to the saints, but The Greek word itself means to hand over. And you may remember uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas Iscariot came to Christ, uh, he is the one who was going to betray Christ. He was going to hand him over. And he said to uh, those who were with him, uh, take him and hold him fast. He's really saying, get a hold of him. Don't let him go. And that's the sort of idea that you have here in this third verse of the epistle of Jude. Uh, We're given the faith. 
Uh, the people of God, it's given to them, the saints, the holy ones, people who are saved by the grace of God and cleansed by the blood of Christ. And we are told uh, that uh, it is delivered to us. And we take our cue, in a sense, from Judas, only this time in a good sense. Hold it. Don't let go of it. And we're to fight for it, uh, not with uh, carnal weapons, we're to fight for it in prayer. We're to fight for it in speaking up for it. We're to fight for it in love in order to help men and women to see the truth and in order to encourage the saints of God to persevere in this precious faith that has been given to us. Uh, now, if you study church history, you'll know uh, how strongly the early Christians contended for the faith. We read of the Ephesian church, even when it was failing in love, we are told in Revelation chapter 2 that they tried those who claimed to be apostles, they found them liars, and they refused to accept them. They wouldn't allow heresy into the church because heresy destroys the church of Jesus Christ. Many Bible colleges have been infiltrated by those who were false teachers. Way back at the early part of the 20th century in Ulster, there was a professor by the name of J.E. Davey. And Professor Ernest Davey was a man who came from a godly home. His father was a very godly man and a very great preacher who saw a measure of revival. Davey professed himself to be saved he professed to receive the second blessing at the Keswick Convention. Of course, uh, we don't believe in that second blessing as it was understood at that time. But he taught heresy, blatant heresy. Talked about Christ on the cross, feeling a failure. Uh, that he had let the Father down. When it was too late, he felt a failure. He said that the conquests of Joshua were absurdly exaggerated in the book of Joshua. He said that Abraham was one of the one historical figure amongst the patriarchs, but he added, I don't think his name was Abraham. So here was a man who was a heretic. And there's so much more I could say about him. He said the book of John, the Gospel of John, was in places more pagan. No, sorry, the book of Revelation was in places more pagan than Christian. And he said the Gospel of John revealed what he called a binity, or two persons in the Godhead, rather than the Trinity, the three persons in the Godhead. He was taken to trial. A Presbyterian minister by the name of the Reverend James Hunter charged him with heresy inside the Belfast Presbytery. He admitted substantially the accuracy of the comments that were attributed to him. But he was found not guilty on five counts. He was justified when it came in 1927 to the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. He won the vote by 707 votes to 82. What a tragedy. 700 of the presbyters in the General Assembly, the governing body of the Presbyterian Church, against 82, voted in favour of the heretic. And it was as a result of that that our church, and we might say your church, ultimately came uh, into being. So the faith 
The faith is the faith of God's word and we have a duty uh, to contend earnestly for the faith. Now the reformation that took place which, which led uh, to a restoration of the faith, uh, that reformation is often called the Protestant Reformation. And in a moment or two I'll tell you how that name uh, came about, that word Protestant. To some people it is something uh, of we might say a dirty word if my Bible would stop sliding about the pulpit it might be easier I've got those things out of the way to many it is uh, a dirty word Uh, a present government minister Michael Gove he's just recently come back into the government was a journalist with the Times newspaper Uh, and he wrote an article he had spotted the Protestant Truth Society bookshop in Fleet Street in London And he wrote a little article, or maybe a larger article, I read it at the time, in the Times. It's quite a few years ago. And actually, he wrote very favorably about Protestantism. But generally, we can say that the word Protestant is associated often with bigotry. And it's associated with those who have a very narrow view. But the Reformation brought about what we call Protestantism. Some people are ashamed of it. Uh, A number of years ago, a man from the Republic of Ireland was interested in having me preach in Limerick. And he phoned me up. He was a converted Roman Catholic. And he explained to me, I'm not a Protestant. Uh, So uh, uh, I suppose the bristles rose. And I said, you are a Protestant. You may not take the name, but you are a Protestant. Because what you believe is really the Protestant faith. That faith that uh, took its name, uh, for, as far as we are concerned, uh, from the Reformation in the 16th century. And those of us who know what Protestantism is, we are proud to be called Protestants. Uh, it's, it's not a, a foolish pride, but we're proud to be associated uh, with that glorious name and It is a name uh, for which we stand. Uh, Now, we'll start by thinking uh, of the beginnings uh, of Protestantism. Uh, Really, we can trace it back to 1517, and I will mention that uh, also in a moment or two. But it takes its name from the Diet of Spires. The Diet was a council, nothing to do with losing weight. And I know you know that before I even say it. Uh, But it was a council Uh, in the city of Spires uh, that took place in April uh, uh, 1529. Uh, uh, In 1526 there had been an earlier diet that granted religious liberty uh, to all the states uh, until a general council might be called. So there's liberty, there's liberty for Protestants, there's liberty for Roman Catholics. But the diet in 1529 changed everything. Uh, It was stated in that diet that the states where the Church of Rome held sway uh, and were in control, they were to continue as before. No pressure was to be exerted upon them to change them to Protestant states. But the the states where liberty prevailed, uh, they were to stay. But uh, the Roman Catholic hierarchy was to be re-established. The Mass was to be permitted and Uh, This, I think, was really the crucial point. No converts were to be allowed 
from the Church of Rome to Lutheranism. Uh, And on the 10th of April, uh, 1529, the uh, Lutheran princes uh, and deputies of cities that uh, favoured the Reformation, they read out a declaration of protest against the decision of that diet or council. They took their stand on the word of God, and that is highly significant. They protested, and uh, from that protest, there came the term Protestant. Now, while the name itself is negative, it has a very positive aspect, uh, because the Latin word from which we get our English word uh, Protestant means uh, not only uh, a protest, uh, but it has the idea of a witness for something. And so the Protestant Reformation was a witness to the truth. Dr. J.A. Wiley, in his wonderful book, History of Protestantism, says it is a negative name. Uh, and he said, had it only been negative, it would not have survived. And he added, in a word, Protestantism is revived Christianity. May, may I commend to you uh, the, the three volumes, well, actually, a Mourn Missionary Trust uh, has uh, republished it in two volumes. You can also download it. Uh, one of the problems of the downloaded uh, book is that sometimes in the scanning, words get changed and wrong words come in. Uh, and uh, if you're going to quote authoritatively, Uh, What you don't want is to quote something and the word's all wrong and someone who knows better than you says, that's all rubbish, you've got it wrong. So you're better to read uh, the authentic books that have the words right. If I have one criticism of Wiley, it is this. Uh, It's very easy to read, yes. It's so easy uh, and so lovely, uh, those volumes. If it's in three volumes or two, Uh, you can enjoy reading it. But it is somewhat uncritical. By that I mean that uh, it shows everything in a very favourable light. You read J.H. Merrill de Binyu and you'll see some criticism or uh, Lindsay on the Reformation and you'll see that uh, there were flaws, not in Protestantism, but in Protestants. Because we're far from a perfect people. And sometimes there were persecutions of Protestants against uh, Protestants and so on. Wiley presents a very glowing picture. Uh, I know that because uh, before the 500th anniversary of the birth uh, of Martin Luther, uh, I decided that uh, in Kilkeel, the church I was ministering in, I would preach uh, on Luther. Uh, and I saw there's 600 pages in each of the three volumes, and I reckoned it would take me three months to read through the three volumes of Wiley's History of Protestantism, and I uh, succeeded in my aim. Uh, It's nice reading, uh, but you've got to keep at it and do those 20 or so pages every day in order to complete the task. I recommend it to you. Get the three volumes Read through them, or the two volumes, read through them, and you'll have a very good knowledge of the Reformation in different parts of Europe, how God moved and how God blessed 
and how God transformed uh, not just uh, England and Scotland and Wales uh, and Germany and so on, uh, but other parts, even places where uh, the Reformation didn't have a majority footing amongst the people. But I say that Protestantism is not just a protest and a protest movement. It is a witness to that which is very precious. It is a witness to this faith that Jude tells us was once delivered to the saints. It's a witness to the inspiration of the Bible. How precious that is to us. I looked this morning with you at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, a foundational statement. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we are told in verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The next verse says that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. How wonderful, how precious this book, breathed out by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God used uh, the personalities uh, and uh, the styles of the writers, but guided them that they made no mistakes. Sometimes when I speak of the inspiration of the Bible, I think of a flautist from our own province in the United Kingdom, from Ulster, James Galway. He's able to play the flute. He's able to play other instruments that require breath, wind instruments. Now, he may play a tune on one, a different tune on the other. It's his breath. The instrument's different, so the sound that's coming from it is somewhat different. But he may play all those instruments and different tunes and play them all perfectly. Isn't that a picture of the inspiration of the Bible? Uh, You look at the Word of God and you see that Peter writes differently from Paul. Paul's an intellectual. Peter's a simple-minded man. Moses is different from David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And you read through the Gospels, the different styles of the writers. Prophecy is different from poetry. History is different from prophecy. And we have it all in 66 books composed over a period of approximately 1,600 years. All the various styles. But there's a unity. We call it the Bible. And it's from the Greek word, which means the book. It is the book. When Sir Walter Scott was dying, he said to his attendant, bring me the book. And the reply uh, that came from the attendant was, which book, sir? And he said to his attendant, can you ask? There is but one. Yes. 66 books over 1,600 years, different authors, different styles, one book, One unifying theme. Christ said, search the scriptures, for they are they which testify of me. You see, Christ, in the word of God, he stands out in this inspired book. You see his virgin birth in the scriptures. You see his deity. On one occasion, he said to the Jews, I and my father are one. John 5, verse 17. And they took umbrage with him were very upset with him. 
You said you've called God your father, making yourself equal with God. What did he do? Did he say, well, I've made a mistake? I shouldn't have said that? No, throughout the chapter, he shows his equality with the father. The father does something, I do it. The father is in control, you might say, but I'm in control. Read through that chapter and you'll see that what the father does, the son does. There's that equality. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is equal with the Father and equal with the Holy Spirit. And then you see something more. Something to us that is quite glorious. You see the sufficiency of Christ's work on Calvary's cross. That's why he was able to say in John 19 and verse 30, it is finished. That is one word in the Greek. And it's in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense describes an action which is complete in past time, but whose effects continue into present time. Let me give you a little illustration of it. If you're ever in London and you're in Trafalgar Square, uh, don't feed the pigeons or you'll be in trouble, but that's not what I'm uh, going to say to you. Go to the National Gallery. And look at the masters, uh, the, the wonderful paintings that are there. Gainsborough, uh, Constable, and other masters. And stop and, and spend a little time. You see a country scene. I love country scenes. I grew up in the country. And you stand there and you gaze. The work's finished centuries ago. But you, you can relive the experience. You can feel yourself there in the country hundreds of years ago. You can feel yourself by the seaside many years ago. You can feel yourself in the city many years ago. The work is complete. Completed hundreds of years ago in some instances. But the effects continue because that painting has an effect on you in present time. Now can you see what I'm driving at? The work of Christ on the cross was completed 2,000 years ago. The effects continue. They continued into the 20th century. They continue into the 21st century. I was saved, obviously, in the 20th century. Well, I shouldn't say obviously, but I was saved in the 20th century. Uh, Some of you may have been saved in the 21st century. And don't we sing it? Thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved (coughs) to sin no more. Yes, the work's complete, the effects continue, and they will continue to the end of time. They will continue throughout eternity. And so that is what we believe. We believe in the sufficiency of the work of Christ on Calvary. And we believe in his ascension, on the, uh, sorry, his resurrection uh, on the third day and his ascension after 40 days. A bishop in England, Bishop David Jenkins of Durham, called the resurrection a few years ago a conjuring trick with bones. It was no conjuring trick. Jesus Christ rose on the third day 
Uh, he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. And all the statements that are made that try uh, to uh, contradict the resurrection, they carry no weight. <coughs> we might say they hold no water. Christ rose. Death cannot keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior. He tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his sins to reign. He arose, he arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. <coughs> and he's going to come again. This same Jesus shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So said the angel to the disciples as they stood gazing up into heaven. We may disagree about the sequence of events. Uh, our late minister, the Reverend Elliot, who is a good friend of mine, uh, used to say, uh, and he was quoting somebody, I don't know who, but everybody's entitled to my opinion. And I have a particular view uh, on the second coming. Some people think it's wrong. I know it's right. And I say, everybody's entitled to my opinion. I'm accused of being arrogant, I think, for believing that, but it's never arrogant to believe the truth. Then there's the great doctrine for which Martin Luther contended that just shall live by faith. We're not saved by works. We're saved by simple faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it is all of grace. By grace are ye saved through faith. And so, as we protest uh, against uh, the, uh, the teachings of Rome that salvation is uh, of works, we also contend for the faith and we contend against all forms uh, of error and of blasphemy. Uh, that's why we contend against the Church of Rome because it's leading poor, deluded followers of that religion astray, telling them that uh, they, uh, they need to perform uh, good works to get into heaven, that uh, they need to confess their sins to a priest and pollute his ears with uh, the wickedness of their hearts, uh, and also uh, telling them that when they die, they won't have enough meritorious works to get them into heaven, they will go for an endless period, or an all, not quite an endless period, but an almost endless period, an unspecified period, into the fires of purgatory. And that word purgatory, it's from purging. Doesn't the Bible say the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us or purgeth us from all sin? And dishonor is done to the name of Christ, suggesting that there's a further work of purging if we have Christ as our Savior, our sins are washed and we're clean. The 39 or one of the 39 articles of the Church of England and the Church of Ireland in which I grew up protests against the sacrifices of masses and describes them as blasphemous fables and dangerous deceits. You wouldn't think that was in the 39 articles of the Anglican faith when you uh, see men like the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, thinking and describing uh, the uh, Pope of Rome uh, as a brother. He's not a brother. 
Uh, and he is described as Antichrist in the church uh, by our own confession of faith. Uh, so Jude here says we are to contend earnestly uh, with agony of heart, uh, with agony of longing for the name of Christ and the honor of Christ. We're to contend for the faith. This faith that I have described, uh, we're to contend for the faith which has been delivered to the people of God. We cannot let it go for the sake of Christ's honor. We cannot let it go uh, for the sake of the people of God who love the name of Christ. And we cannot let it go for the sake of perishing souls. You see, if you let that faith go, what have you to offer to men and women who are lost and guilty and bound for hell? Now, I want to make another point, and I know this is going really more into history than exposition of the scripture. I will say that while the name itself came from the 16th century, Protestantism itself is much older than the 16th century. I've shown you that uh, it really is biblical Christianity revived. Uh, It predates its name. Uh, It's uh, older uh, than the the men of uh, the 16th century, Luther and Calvin and Knox and Zwingli and so on. It's as old as the preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Peter, James, John, uh, Paul, uh, and so on. And uh, it it, it goes back right to, uh, we might say, right to the very beginning of time. Uh, You have the picture of it uh, in the sacrifices in the Old Testament. You have the picture of it in the slaying of an animal and the covering of Adam and Eve and the coat of skins that covered their nakedness. It's as old. The gospel, the faith, is as old as Adam and Eve. And the first person described as a person of the faith of God's word uh, it's not Adam and Eve, but it's Abel. By faith, he offered unto God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So there was a man who was saved by the grace of God. He had faith in the coming Savior, the Son of God. I may say that in our own island, Patrick, or St. Patrick, uh, he was a man of God. Uh, There are two documents uh, that uh, tell us about Patrick. One is his confession, and the other is his letter to the slave trader, Corotechus. And if you read through those documents, you can download them from the internet, you will find that he speaks about being a sinner, Patrick the clown, and how he had disobeyed the teaching of his parents, uh, and how he had become a captive. He speaks of his repentance and his trust in Christ. And he never mentions Rome. He never mentions uh, the Mass or confession. He mentions simple faith in Jesus Christ. And also, he refers to praying. Uh, Many times he would rise up and sometimes he would go out into the woods and in the snow he would kneel down and pray. And he says... Up to 200 times in the day. He was constantly engaged in prayer. Very short prayers probably. But lifting up his heart. Crying to God. And in the two writings of St. Patrick. There are either uh, 
uh, quotations from or allusions to the scriptures and there are approximately 200 of those quotations or allusions. Here is a man who had that faith before Martin Luther, before John Knox, before John Calvin, uh, before Archbishop Cranmer or any of those people. Patrick. Patrick was a man who believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And after he escaped and went home, his family pleaded with him not to go back to Ireland, where he had been a slave. But then he had a vision, and he saw some letters. And one of them said, uh, it was called the call of the Irish, come holy youth, it said, and walk amongst us once more. Now you might say, you're getting into a strange territory here, and I know that. But God called him. And God used him. And he lived faithfully and preached faithfully. He preached the faith once delivered to the saints. Then we have John Wycliffe. And I, I must move quickly on because time moves more quickly here than it does at home. Well, it moves too quickly for me at home as well, I've got to say. John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation. And here is a man who said the Pope had no right to get money from England. He attacked transubstantiation. He translated the Bible into English from the Latin Vulgate. That's, Vulgate's just the ordinary language of the people. Translated it. Didn't have the better manuscripts that our Bible is translated from. And it, it was a difficult thing to do. Uh, it took a long, long time uh, to, uh, to do that translation and to write it out. You didn't have the printing press at that time. And the, the, the word of God, that the cost of producing a copy was equivalent to the cost or price of 2,400 pigs or 9,600 chickens. So it was an enormously expensive thing to produce just one copy of the word of God. And people were giving a load of hay uh, just to have uh, maybe a page of the Bible or a copy of the Word of God for one day. And it was a capital offence to possess a copy of the Word of God. And yet quite a number of copies uh, of uh, Wycliffe's translation survive to this day. He was indeed a true Protestant uh, before the name uh, was coined. Uh, and Rome was so mad with him that after his death they dug up his remains uh, and they burnt his remains and they were cast into the river Swift and it said that they flowed uh, into other rivers and flowed out across the oceans and the teaching spread across the world. He was succeeded by John Huss of Bohemia which would be in modern Czechoslovakia. Well, it's not called Czechoslovakia today but in some part of what was called uh, Czechoslovakia. Uh, here's a man who was summoned to Constance uh, by the emperor under promise of a safe conduct, but there he was burnt at the stake. He was a follower of uh, Wycliffe. I, I could go on and go further uh, with other people, uh, but I want to say this, that Protestantism in its beginnings was a mighty spiritual force. Uh, it takes its special identity uh, from the 16th century uh, and that was really uh, the, the century uh, of a mighty spiritual awakening 
It was probably the greatest revival since Pentecost itself. I love to read uh, of that uh, opening passage in Acts chapter 2. They were all with one accord in one place and suddenly, just we might say out of the blue, suddenly, when God acts mightily, he often acts suddenly. Suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the place where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire and came and sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and spake with other tongues. And God moved and with other tongues it's other languages. And the people came rushing together and Peter preached a very simple message and at the very end of that message along with the preaching of the other apostles uh, we are told that uh, he, he charged with them he said he charged them with the death of Christ and he said God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified both Lord and Christ and in the original dense uh, you know the order slightly different it is God hath made that same Jesus both Lord and Christ whom ye crucified. That's a, a, an arrow through the heart or a dagger through the heart. Whom ye crucified. He's Lord and Christ. He's the one that was promised. He died. He rose again. We're witnesses. It's true. It's fulfillment of the scriptures. He's the Lord. He's the anointed. He's the Messiah whom ye crucified. And when they heard that, they were pricked to the heart and they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? What a move of God. 3,000 saved. Short time later, we read the number of the disciples uh, was 5,000. And the, the, uh, the number of the men, actually it is, and it's males, as distinct from females, is 5,000. And I gather from that that the number had grown to 5,000 families. From 3,000 to 5,000 families. And then it spread across Judea. It spread into Samaria. And then it spread across to Europe. And it spread to our shores. And it spread to your shores. What a move that was that took place in the first century. And the 16th century Protestant Reformation that we celebrate at the end of October, it was, I'm sure, on a lesser scale, but nonetheless, it was a mighty move of God. But in between times, we have the dark ages. And you have a world full of darkness, sacrificing priests, the mass, purgatory, superstition, immorality, indulgences, the Inquisition, people stretched on the rack, uh, horizontally uh, stretched, uh, bone from bone, vertically stretched, hauled up, uh, to the roof with weights uh, that are suspended on their feet and then released and the victim came down with a jerk and the backs were torn open uh, by spiked uh, uh, I can't read the word even now that I've written down uh, spiked rollers so uh, it was horrible the way that Rome treated faithful 
Christians, faithful believers. They had the Iron Maiden and the victim was embraced in the arms of the Iron Maiden and the spiked arms enclosed the victim and then gored the victim to death. And then the body was released and was dropped down a shaft to the river beneath. That was, that was the persecution of faithful Protestants and Protestants who were burnt at the stake. Uh, and indeed, uh, persecution far from silencing uh, the voice of Protestantism and far from uh, silencing the voice of the gospel, it made people see these people are willing to suffer. These people are willing to die. And they could see this is the truth. And when people were burnt at the stake, then those who were looking on, they heard the words of Old Arch, our Bishop Latimer, pray, play the man, Brother Ridley. We shall this day light such a flame in England as I trust shall never be put out. And Archbishop Cranmer, who had failed and had recanted, then recanted of his recantation. And he stood nobly at the stake. He held his right hand that he had signed his right recantation with. He held it in the flames and he said, this right hand, this unworthy right hand, thou must perish first in the flames. Martin Luther said at the Diet of Worms in March 1521, here I stand, I can do no other May God help me. Amen. And Luther's the man uh, who sparked the Reformation on the 31st of October 1517 when he nailed 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. Those are really points for discussion. But uh, they started up something that could not be stopped. And the Reformation spread. Uh, the Bible was translated by Luther into the German language and it really formed and fashioned the German language. The language of our authorised version is essentially the language of another martyr, uh, William Tyndale, especially in the New Testament. Some will reckon 90 to 95% of the English authorised version New Testament comes from the work of William Tyndale. William Tyndale uh, was determined to give the, the boy who, who worked the plough as much information, as much knowledge of the word of God as the so-called learned bishops of England. And he found, thinking that he would be allowed to translate the Bible after all, it's God's word, into English for the use of the common people, he found that there was no place for him in England uh, to translate the Bible. He fled to the continents and when he translated the Bible, uh, Bishop Tunstall, the Bishop of London, his determination was to destroy the Bible. And so he bought all the bundles with Bibles in them that were coming into England and coming to London. He bought them and then he burnt them. What he didn't realize was this. For every Bible that he paid for, uh, Tyndale was able to produce two Bibles and send them over to England. So... Uh, we have a saying about being hoist with one's own petard. Uh, it means you're, you're undone by your own work. Well, that's what happened 
to Bishop Tunstall. Uh, the Bible was spread twice as widely. Twice as many copies were made. But sadly, William Tyndale was betrayed by a man called Henry Phillips. And on the 6th of October, uh, 1536, he was strangled and burnt at the stake in Vilvord in Belgium. Among his last words were these, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And God did that. Uh, and very soon after that, the Bible was placed in every parish church in England. Uh, we could mention so many other people connected with the Reformation. Zwingli in Zurich, Calvin in Geneva. How can you admit John Calvin from talk about the Rev- uh, Reformation? John Knox in Scotland. Uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, feared the prayers of John Knox. And Knox cried to God. He said, give me Scotland or I die. And his son-in-law, John Welsh, was also a great man of God. And John Welsh used to get up in the middle of the night and put a blanket over him and cry to God. His wife would plead with him to get some rest. And his statement was, I have the care of 3,000 souls, and I know not how it is with many of them. And his grandson was greatly used of God, Josias Welsh, in a a revival called the Six Mile Water Revival uh, that ran for approximately 10 years uh, from 1625 to 1635. You say, where is Six Mile Water? Well, it's in Ulster. Uh, And uh, it's near uh, the town of Antrim, that Six Mile Water region. Uh, And that set the tone uh, in Ulster. uh, And uh, the blessing continued. And we came through to 1859, where we had a revival in which it is reckoned 100,000 people were saved. And that's in a small population. And so while we, uh, we look at the 16th century, we see a great move of God, uh, but we trace it further back. We trace it back, in a sense, uh, to what Jude says here. He says, the faith's delivered to you, uh, and you're to contend for it. It's, it's a trust that's given to you. You think of, of this, and I'm almost finished. Uh, you think of this. Say you're uh, in a bank, and in days gone by, I worked in the bank for almost 10 years, but someone comes in, says to the manager of the bank, I have a safe deposit, and I have some very valuable things that I want safeguarded. I don't want to keep them in my home, because if someone breaks in, I might lose them. These are valuable items, jewels or uh, gold or something of very great value. And so they're entrusted to the manager. He places them in the safe. He has the keys. He has the code. uh, And he knows uh, I am responsible. I dare not lose those valuables. If they're lost, uh, then great damage will be done to the bank. And the person who has trusted me with them uh, will be greatly enraged and greatly disappointed uh, because of my carelessness. Well, do you see? 
Do you see what it's saying here? You're a child of God, say. You're born again. You have that faith in your heart. You have that faith in the scriptures. Uh, The faith that uh, you might say is uh, subjective. That's in your heart. The objective faith because it's based on the word of God. And uh, it reveals, as we've seen, Christ in all his glory, in all his great work. And you're told, that's been given to you as a sacred trust. And you're told to contend for it. You're to contend for it. You're to agonize for it. Uh, and you're to fight, uh, fight with uh, spiritual weapons for that faith. Because if you lose it, you dishonor God. Because if you lose it, the church loses out. And because if you lose it, then souls that you might influence by holding to it may well be lost and perish in their sin. That faith, to some extent, was lost uh, during the Dark Ages, but it was recovered. That's why we celebrate this time. It was recovered at the time of the Reformation. Uh, And the Reformation wasn't just a move of Martin Luther. Ulrich Zwingli, who was in Zurich, uh, he made it clear that he came to the faith. He started out as a Roman Catholic priest. He made it clear that he came to the faith without knowing about Martin Luther. Uh, And that is true of others. God moved simultaneously. He moved in Germany. He moved in the Netherlands. He moved in England. He moved in Scotland. Now, I know there were some that were interrelated. He moved in Sweden. He moved in France. There was a reformation in France. France never became a Protestant country. But God moved in it. And he moved in Spain in spite of the Inquisition. In spite of the torture of believers. We're in danger of losing this sacred trust. We're in danger of losing it. In fact, to a large extent, we have lost it. Sometimes England, and I just use the word England loosely for the United Kingdom, is described as post-Christian. It might be better to describe it as anti-Christian because of the laws that are being passed and the antagonism that there is to Protestantism, which is really antagonism to the faith that is revealed in the Scriptures and committed to the people of God. But all is not lost. God isn't dead. God is alive. And sometimes, just when you think, just when you think that all is lost, God shows how alive he is by moving mightily. Before the 1859 revival, and I must stop, and you're saying probably yourself, will he stop? Well, I must stop. But before, uh, even going back to uh, here to America, before 1857, there was a falling away. And Jeremiah Lanfear, a New York City missionary, determined to have noonday prayer meetings And he started off in a church for about 20 minutes. He was on his own. Somebody else joined him. And before very long, there were prayer meetings, packed prayer meetings throughout New York and in in many other cities in America. 
And it is reckoned that between half a million and a million people were converted in those years, 1857-1858. Some young men in Northern Ireland heard of what God was doing in America. They gathered together in a schoolroom in Kells in County Antrim. They began to pray and then God began to move. And a wonderful revival took place. And it transformed Ulster. Then we had... uh, a, a very unique character uh, in Ulster by the name of W.P. Nicholson. And in the early 1920s, he came back to his native province and he preached. The men in the shipyards flocked uh, into church. Uh, so much that was brought back by, that was stolen from the shipyards that they had to open a special shed uh, to receive uh, the returned items that had been stolen uh, um, from, uh, by men who were converted under Nicholson. Uh, and halfway through his first series of missions in Ulster, 1922 to 1923, 12,500 people had passed through the inquiry rooms. Now, Nicholson didn't allow children into the inquiry rooms. He made it tough for those who wanted to be saved. He made them stand up and declare themselves publicly that they wanted to come to Christ. Fifty years after Nicholson's missions, you would have met, as I did, people who were saved through W.P. Nicholson. They were prominent in the work of God. They were walking with God, living for Christ. The faith, once delivered to the saints, gets to a low ebb. You say it's going to vanish from the face of the earth. When Christ died on the cross, the disciples thought all was lost. But suddenly, suddenly there came the day of Pentecost. Suddenly there came the Reformation. Suddenly there came that 1859 revival. And I say this to you, what God has done once, he can do a thousand times. He can do it. And I say as well, If you're not saved, and I trust you are saved, but if you're not saved, the Lord can save you. He can change you. He can give you that faith that has been delivered. Delivered because of Christ. Because of his love. Because of his sacrifice. Because of the shedding of his blood. And he says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that thou wilt apply thy truth to all of our hearts. May we hear thy voice. O Lord, may we see that thou art a great God. May we look beyond Martin Luther. May we look beyond William Tyndale. May we look beyond John Huss and John Wycliffe. May we look beyond the apostles. May we look beyond man. And may we look to Christ. And may we taste and see, even those of us who are saved, may we taste and see that the Lord is good. Separate us in thy fear with thy love and blessing. Spread thy covering wings around till all our wanderings cease and at our Father's loved abode, those who are thine, arrive in peace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.